How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. It is a delight to have Gil Wesley on the broadcast today. Hey, friend. Hey, Michael. Great to be here. Gil's in the studio. Gil and I, we met in 1980. Well, one is when we started. It might have been toward the end of the 81. So you and I both started Dallas Theological Seminary. A few of us started in the summer to take so-called baby Greek. (laughs) Nothing baby about Greek. (laughs) But you started that fall semester. Correct. And I don't remember the first class we had together, but you and a handful of other guys, we became lifelong friends. And that's been, that's bucking up close to 40 years, isn't it? Yep. 30 yep. plus years. Yep. You're old, man. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm feeling it too, Michael. Are we both? I feel it. One of the things that when Hannah and I designed these 10 questions was to talk to friends of mine who have followed the Lord through thick and thin So we're going to do two broadcasts on In Context, one with Gil answering the 10 questions and one that's going to rock your world, and we'll save that content for that. But let's jump into these 10 questions. So, Gil, the concept of In Context is to try to help people understand not only the Bible in the context in which it was written to that audience. So you live a life as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a homemaker who has a part-time job, a full-time, whatever. How do you follow Christ in your context? So my question to you is, in your context, because you're not a typical pastor, minister, you're not on staff at a church, in your context, how do you live out the life of Christ where you are today? And by the way, just for our friends, you live in Chico, California. I'll pray for you. Chico, California. And you've been out there for almost 30 years. 1987 is when I got there. When we graduated, I stayed at the seminary and was a graduate assistant, teaching assistant for a couple of years, and then from there went to Chico, so in 87. Left in 89 to go to the Bay Area for a couple of years, came back in 91, and have been in Chico since 91. So how do you live out the context of a follower of Christ in Chico, California, and the ministry you do out there? Great question, Mike. And What I think I've been asked to look into and do is there are a great number of people, especially in California and the West Coast, that have had experiences with organized religion that have not been meaningful or helpful for them, but they're not giving up on God. And they're just wondering, like, what? And I think what I've been asked to do is to be that person that can step outside the four walls of a, you know, typical organizational church and help them find their way back into that milieu, you know, answering their questions, help them understand about God, helping them to understand many, if not most of the things they were told are not what the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus is about. And there's just a great receptivity. So almost there's this resurgence of people interested, but can't, for whatever reasons, through suffering or abuse or whatever, go back the way they maybe knew in the past. So I often say, when people ask, what do you do? I say, I try to help people 
integrate their spiritual journey in what they do in life, that it's not two separate things. You're not a Christian and a teacher. You're a teacher who, who happens to be a Christian. Who experiences so, it. back to the nomenclature we would typically use of evangelism and or discipleship. This is sort of under the veil of a relational network of helping these people either come to Christ or helping them grow. Right. It sort of blurs the lines. Almost, you know, you're helping them come back to things that they know in the deepest part of their hearts are important to them. Their assurances of that there is some power greater than me, that I'm not the end of the world, that there is this destiny and there's this eternity, and I just don't know how to access it anymore if I can. I've been told that God doesn't want me. I'm out. And a group of people that are saying, I just can't go to a building on a day of the week and hear a talk and sing and that be enough. I want to participate in what God might be doing Mm -hmm. in the world. The idea that really has influenced me is out of 2 Corinthians, where you are ambassadors of Christ. So if one of the main topics of Jesus was the kingdom of God, every kingdom needs a ministry. So like every country but the United States calls them ministers of state. We call them secretaries of state. Mm -hmm. And I think it's brilliant because a minister is a servant servant of the leader of that group. An ambassador is a minister of highest rank sent by the sovereign of one kingdom to live as an alien in another kingdom and to represent that king while living there. I mean, Does those terms sound familiar? Aliens in a foreign land, we're ambassadors of Christ. And so if we were the British government, we'd have a minister of education. We'd have a minister of state, a minister of tourism, Mm -hmm. a minister of finance. So I speak to business people and say, what if you begin to see yourself? How did you make these relational connections in that context? Generally, it's either at a coffee shop or, but more than not, Somebody will go, would you speak to my So you brother? have a relational capital with a group of yes, people in Chico yes. for almost 20 plus yes, years. Yes, exactly. And they say, you need to talk to my friend exactly. Gil because he, they wouldn't say it as like we might say it. He's a Christian. He loves Jesus. He can help you understand the Bible. They'd say, this person is going to ask you the right questions and guide you in a conversation that's going to be different. Perfectly said. Well said. All right. Let's go on. Number two, what has been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? And this will obviously segue later into our second part when we interview you about your own life story. But give us a tease, the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey. Well, you're right. We will get to how I got to this greatest challenge. But most people would make the mistake that my greatest challenge is what we're going to get to the story. But my greatest spiritual challenge was learning to get out of my egoic head and self. Okay. Explain egoic to our folks. Okay. I, through my family and through experiences, did not believe that I would be loved or valued if I was not performing and being needed. And I didn't believe I'd be cared for unless I was in charge of that. So I created a me that, although I put a spiritual face on it, was just me trying to be in control. And because of my personality types or Enneagram types, if you know anything about that, 
We don't talk about those things. Okay. But whatever, <laughs> I the way I managed all that was I get got in my head. And then I was also, as you know, I played sports at Florida State and I was trained by the best not to pay attention to your body or your heart. You just Power muscle through. through. And I then thought well, that's how you get mature spiritually is just think your way through everything. And through the certain events that we will talk about eventually, a lot of sorrow and suffering and loss, I realized that wasn't working. And I had to come to this place where I would allow myself to get out of my safety zones of my head and start going back into my heart, back into my body. Okay, so give me a Cliff Notes version, the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey. I had mistakenly thought that a relationship with God was about belonging to the right team, thinking the right things about God, and being able to articulate the right ideas, and then keeping a moral code. Okay. And what I had to learn is that those are fine, but they can get in the way of the relationship. It's Jesus' passage. You diligently study the scriptures because you think they give you life, but they speak of me, and yet you will not come to me. C.S. Lewis has this poem that says that most prayers as our own unquiet thoughts about what we think God is, and all of our prayers miss the mark by, unless God in magnetic mercy turns those things to who he really is. Only he who we bow to knows to whom we bow. Therefore, all prayers are blasphemes unless you translate our groans. And I thought I was doing it because I had all the right ideas. I belonged to the right team. I was keeping a moral code. And God, in his magnetic mercy, said, that's a great start, young friend, but you don't know me. I felt like the older brother that you know was always in the Father's house, but never left and had to go out and learn what it meant to know love and know grace. Again, that Ephesian passage, I want you to know this love that transcends knowledge. I could tell you all the passage. I could tell you all the right theologies. I just didn't know it. Number three, do you have a key verse or a favorite book of the Bible? Oh, man. I know it's hard to pick one. I can't do two then. <laughs> sure. sure. All right, let me just... Since you never had a short answer, right. Gil, I'll give you two. <laughs> oh, brother. Let me just do two. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and earth drives its name, its identity, its being, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So there's this idea that God is going to have to grant me power. You know, it's like, why would he have to grant me power to know love? Mm -hmm. And I think it's where our enemy camps. Because if we get this love, not an idea of it, not the right thinking about it, but if we can experience this no is that Adam knew Eve. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. Average man, woman, working a 50-hour-a-week job, trying to worry about their family, their kids, their money, their mortgage, and they say, okay, Gil, put that on the lower shelf for me. Mm -hmm. How in the world do I have Christ dwelling in my heart through faith? How does Gil Wesley understand that? It's a 
you know, this is too technical, participle. And I think I would say, because you're rooted and grounded in love. Causal, okay. Yes, I would say causal. It's because you're rooted and grounded in love, you need to know this love that's yours. But so many, Mike, you know it. You talk to them every day. and They can tell you that, oh, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, but they don't know that. They don't comprehend it. They don't comprehend. It's not. And that word comprehend there is wrestle and overcome. So I'm arguing to that person that the enemy of your soul, the powers are there, what, however we you know, talk about that, mm-hmm. has done everything it can, not for you to get the idea that you're loved, but for you to live in that to love, that to experience know, To know that you know. And to know that you know. And we could talk forever, the people we talk to. No, we can't. Yeah, well, but the, the thing that's driving them in all the bad behavior or destructive things is they just want to be loved. They want to matter. They want to know, and they'll do Somebody whatever. Cares. You know, yep. you're a big music guy. That James Taylor song, you know, goes, tell me lies and hold me tight. Save your goodbyes for the morning light, but don't let me be lonely tonight. tonight. And it drives our... I sing that to Cindy pretty regularly. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> I bet you do. But it drives our decisions on how we interact with people, on what we do with life. And so coming back to the fact that you are loved, and there's nothing you can do to earn it or lose it, and owning that, that's one. The other passage, just quickly, is I want to know Christ. And that, again, know is this know that we just got through. I want to experientially know him. I want to be intimate, close, naked, unashamed with Christ. And the power of his resurrection. The way I get there is by sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. We're going to talk about that in the next interview yes. in great depth. Coming, all right. And all that's right. the second all passage. Right. Question four. Yeah. After the text, after the Bible, one, two, three books that have been particularly powerful, impactful in your life? Almost everything by C.S. Lewis. I'm just that's, hugely That's impacted. more than two or three. I know. I know. <laughs> you know, started with the Chronicles, but then his space trilogies are such profound insights into this journey we're talking about. Great Divorce. Great Divorce, Screwtape Letters, screw those. Tape. But then, Michael, his book of poetry. Hmm. I mean, I could quote you some. It's well, just you, that you powerful. Love poetry, oh, my gosh. Right. I mean, so that, but The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen has been Somehow really, I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> has been influential. But, uh, blessed, and, broken, what is it? Uh, given. Given. It's, it's the uh, yeah. it's taken, blessed, broken, broken and given. given. Yeah. And That's the, an episode in itself. Yeah, okay, all right. Let's go on. Number five, the biggest lesson you've learned at this point in your life. And I know you've got like 8,500 that fit that category, but it's Biggest lesson time. I've learned, write this up. Suffering, sorrow, pain are not punishments or rejections or things to be avoided at all cost, but they are invitations by God into the deepest place of intimacy and transformation. I have this phrase, and I take my fist, and I start over here by my side, and I go like this, and I go, another cheery Michael Easley sermon. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality of that is we are not going to escape this life without pain, suffering, sorrow. Mike, it's amazing to me that we who hold so closely to Jesus have somehow— taken the core of his very being, much less his teachings, and transformed it into we're not supposed to suffer. He if you live good enough, if yeah. you're faithful, if you're right. good, it's kind of a 
prosperity theology tentacle. Yeah. I call it if-then theology. If I do this, then that's going to happen. If I love my children, they'll all love Jesus. If I teach them the gospel, take them to Awana, whatever, you know, if I'm a great Christian homeschooling parent filling in the blank, then if I'm a good husband, good wife, my husband, my wife will turn out fine. It's that if-then theology. But you and I are saying no. Life's going to be very difficult at times. It's going to be very hard, and you have to suffer through it. It's the way past our own constructions that we put together, thinking that we had to be like God, if you borrow the Mm. terminology from Genesis. And you can't. We're not. We can't be. We have to go through the life-to-death-to-resurrection cycle that Jesus calls us to. He clearly said, you can't be close to me. If you don't follow my pattern of life to death to resurrection, and unless the seed falls to the ground, only miracle that I authorize is the sign of Jonah. I mean, it's on and on. It's everywhere. And we have made it into, no, no, the thing to do is be good enough so God will then take away all suffering. And we're so often at counter purposes to what the created way God made it. And we get confused and angry, and that's sometimes why people are outside the organized religion that I meet with. But the other thing in meeting with tons and tons of people who have then tried other, you know, faith traditions when they got hurt or disillusioned with Christianity, this truth is everywhere. It is God's fingerprint in every journey of faith. We're not in control. And that's that egoic self. It wants to be in control. We are not in control. Only God is in control. And unfortunately, the most powerful way back to that truth is through suffering and sorrow. Mm. The other way is deep love. But so much of us are blind to that deep love that suffering and sorrow wake us up both to the fact that we're not in control and the love that was always ours in the first place. It's almost the clearer Jesus gets about a topic, the more we get away from it or try to... It's hard. We retract. Yes. All right, we're going to talk about that more in your next interview. Let's move on. What is the one thing you would long for every believer to know, to think, to be, to do, that type of thing? Yes. You are the visible manifestation of divine love as God chose to express that his love, their love, in you, through you, as you, just as you are. Nothing you can do to earn it or lose it You are the visible manifestation of divine love as God chose to express that love in you, through you, as you, just as you are. Our mentor, prof, friend, Howard Hendricks, oft said, nothing you can ever do will make God love you more. Nothing you could ever do would make God love you less. Absolutely. And that's that passage in Ephesians that we talked to. It's waking up. It's God giving us the power to wrestle with that until it becomes our truth. So every day we wake up, we realize, I am the beloved. And when I get into some of these questionable behaviors or things I don't like, it's because for that moment, I lost that truth. Mm -hmm. And I think I have to then do something. I have to become like God and do something. And and we lose the trust that that is always the truth. In in the people you interact with, how many of us are in that, what I call if-then theology? I've got to do this before I can expect God to do that. I mean, to my heartbreak, I would say, high 80s, more, maybe in the 90s. It's what... And these are people that know the Lord. Oh, they've trusted. They're going to heaven or whatever. And unfortunately, too many of our, you know, faith communities, they use that 
you know, so people will keep coming. And, you is know, that bad? <laughs> not if you have a budget you okay, have to make. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, and it's, you see it. I think that's what Jesus, when he came into the temple and everything changed the system, is saying, look, this place is supposed to be a place where the world, the nations could get to the Father. But because of the way you're trying to make people think they have to do this and do that and whatever, it's now become the dwelling place of the robber. And that's that same robber in John 10 that came to steal and destroy and kill. Okay, let's distill it again. Uh, One thing that you wish every believer would know, do, think, live. That they could wake up every morning and without a question of a doubt or without a second's pause could say, I just as I am right now, am the manifest expression of God's love. That God loves me in my current estate. Now, that doesn't exonerate growth and maturity. Oh, no. Okay. The love of God, we just said, what is his dimensions? How high it is? It's high as heaven is above the earth. How high that is? We just, you know, got a new shot from the Hubble telescope that found, you know, 1,500 new galaxies. So how high is you it? You think those are real? Yeah. Well, you know, the <laughs> point Photoshop being, Photoshop. <laughs> the point, how high is the love of God? It's infinitely Infinite. high. Can't and be. again, going to my beloved C.S. Lewis, higher up and further in. Mm. You're going to forever be plumbing the depths of that love. It's not like, oh, I got that. No. I mean, you're going to go, wait, here? What can separate me from the love of God? Nothing. You know, it's interesting because in our human relational construct, whether it's our children, our grandchildren, our husband, our wife, maybe a mentor that we love dearly, there's always something a little lacking. And that doesn't translate that God's love is beyond that. All right. Number seven, the greatest disappointment in your context. And that can be ministry, vocation, Christian community, whatever you want to. The greatest disappointment in your context. Wow. These are... You've thought about these questions, haven't you? Hey, I had to answer them a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Hannah turned the tables on me, and she asked me all these questions. Wait, I don't answer this. <laughs> Greatest disappointment was how long it took me to surrender into love and trust and not try to think that I could fix it or get my head around it. Love and trust of God. God, a okay. love and okay. trust of God. And, of course— you know, Jesus says clearly, when you love that person, you love me. So, I mean, it's not like either or, but yes, that it took me so long to surrender. So to unpack a, surrender for us a little bit, because sur- that's sort of the yes. innocuous Christian right, word. Right, right, right. Surrender by surrender, I mean to acknowledge that I'm not God and I can't be, mm-hmm. that I don't know everything. I can't get my head around it. I can't logic myself. I'm reading George MacDonald's poetry. It's funny. This one verse, I have not knowledge, wisdom, insight, thought, nor understanding fit to justify you in your work, O perfect. Thou hast brought me up to this, and lo, what you have wrought, I cannot call it good, but I can cry, O enemy, my maker is not done. One day you will behold and from the sight will run. But that idea, I don't have the knowledge, wisdom, insight, thought. I don't have a theological category that can box God in. And I've got to learn that I am not in control, but what I can do is trust his love. I can, like what I think Jesus did, say, it feels like I'm being betrayed. My God, my God, it feels like you're betraying me. But into your hands, I commit my soul, my spirit, because Mm. I know you are good. 
Not good as I wish good looked, but good in essence. And I know I'm your beloved. Therefore, I can trust you. And that's what I mean by surrender. In the worst moment, we have hope and confidence because we know, not think, but we know God is love and we're his beloved and he is good. That's what I mean by surrender. That is a book called The Diary of an Old Soul by George MacDonald. And Gil just guilted me into ordering it. I just ordered it on Amazon, a real small book. All right, let's move on. All right. Let's move on. Number eight, greatest encouragement in your context, ministry, vocation, community. It's the feedback from people like you and other friends who just go, man, how did you do it? Oh, that's another one of Michael Easley's. What is it? Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Yeah. Yeah. So when you start talking to people about suffering and sorrow or the ways to deep intimacy with divine love, I start glazing over and, you know, you just begin, I mean, am I crazy? And I, I haven't followed the typical, traditional, typical mm, trajectory yeah. of ministry or whatever. And you begin to wonder, wow. But then to hear, you know, friends, but then people that go, you have brought hope back to my heart. God that has this, used you. Yes. This is, I can go back to that. That's what I've always been longing for, but you know, I just can't do that. And you go, yeah, well, Jesus couldn't either. So didn't, was it Lincoln that had a little newspaper clipping in his pocket at the four theater that was like a positive comment about him in the newspaper and he had torn it out and stuffed it in his pocket. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Encouragement. I mean, we were uh, made for it. We were made to know that we were the beloved. And so our hearts are bent that way. And when people recognize who God made, you know, without that, they're saying God made you, but they're saying this, this is important. Yeah. I have, uh, I've told the story many, many times, but I have this, you know, you and I had to write a 30-page philosophy of ministry paper for a course in seminary. And when I got out, I was so proud of that, and no one ever asked to read it. (laughs) And so I wrote these five points that were my modified philosophy of ministry. Number one, everybody needs a friend. Number two, everybody is under-encouraged. Number three, everybody is insecure. Number four, everybody needs undivided attention. And number five, lead but don't drive. It's so simple. I probably wrote that in 1982 or three, but I go back to that friend and courage and insecure. And you just articulated how important that is. And Mike, I bet you dollars to donuts, you take those five things and you look at first Corinthians 13 love is, and I guarantee you You that you could put one of those things to each one of those points. That's love. And that's what we were made for. Then can we grasp that? Number nine, you're writing your 18-year-old self a letter. What would you tell Gil? I would say, Gil, the first definitional component of love is patience. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with the world. You're going to have to go through a lot of things to get to the breakthrough. The bad things that happen are things that were meant for good but turned out bad and things that you thought were so right but were the wrong way. Be patient, be loving to yourself, be exceedingly kind to yourself, and go through these things. They're not rejection, they're not punishment. And I know you're in a hurry, but many of these things that you need to know that are the most important things, you need time to learn them. Do you think, and again, and when we talk in our part two with you, do you think you or I or anyone can learn these things without just time? No. I participated in an exercise with a bunch of very deep thinking, great friends. And we. I wasn't part of that. Well, some of my very deep 
thinking, great friends. We were going to put together a document that what I wish I knew when I was 30. So that, you know, the young guys we were mentoring could, you know, jumpstart and everything. And it finally hit me and it became part of the document. It doesn't matter if we don't own it. We think we know too much. No, these kind of things only settle in. Even if you think you might get it, it only settles in. You only get it through the experience of age. You can't know these things at 30. Amen. You know, you have to go through time. You got to be 40, 50. I have this, I think I talk about a lot of thinking in decades, your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and don't be in a hurry to get to the next decade. But in your 20s, you're focusing on these things. Your 30s, if you're married and have kids, you're focusing on raising those kids and making the mortgage, you know, so forth. But when you and I get in our sixth decade here and we look at our friends like Gene Hendricks in their 90s or other men and women who are older than us go, what are they dealing with and learning now? And I'm a, you know, maybe it's getting maudlin, Gil, but the older I get, the more I look back, hopefully with grace and mercy to younger people and say, there's no substitute for time and road miles and calluses and blisters and scars. I want to make the point that goes back to my you know, passage. When I say you can't know these things at 30, I'm not saying you can't intellectually right, right. articulate you can be exposed them, to them. But we're talking about experiential, experiential knowledge integration, where yeah. it's now part of your being. And that's the trouble that I got in, in you know, the 30s. Well, I know that. I know that, Mike. Well, you and I were very mature in our 30s. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know that. But that's this knowledge, and it's knowing that's not a knowledge thing. All right, number 10, what do you want your epitaph to say? He knew he was loved and therefore loved well. Gil Wesley, you must, you must listen to our next discussion Gil's life and experiences will rival anything you've been through. Gil Wesley, my brother, my friend, my seminarian, my cohort, thanks for being on the podcast today and can't wait for folks to hear our next chapter. Well, thank you. I'm constantly amazed that, well, why would anybody listen to this? But yeah, cool. All right, man. Thank you. Next time. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.